I have been so looking forward to doing this episode. It's extreme photojournalism with a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner, Estras Suarez on Behind the Shot. Once again, hi, I'm Steve Brazel, your host. This is the show where we try and get inside the mind of great photographers by taking a closer look behind one of their shots from conception to completion and all those stories and challenges that happen in between. And as always, if you want to see the show notes for this episode, or for that matter, any episode of Behind the Shot, head on over to the website. It's behindtheshot.tv. While you are there, you can see all the ways that you can subscribe to the podcast. The podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts in either audio or video format, assuming that your podcast app of choice supports video. And of course, also the, the video is up on YouTube. And if you are watching on YouTube, YouTube tells me that a lot of you that watch do like the show, but are not subscribed. Perhaps you're just you know, wrapped up in watching it and forget to hit the button. So please, while you are there, head down, hit the subscribe button, click the bell, choose all. That way you will know every time I release something new, whether it be a show like this, a normal behind the shot episode, or one of the reviews that I do, or the image critique shows that I do with my buddy and uh, macro genius Don Komarechka. That way you'll just kind of know when everything happens. So uh, with that in mind, I want to bring my guest in really quick here today because this was a suggestion. Periodically, I'll get somebody fill out the contact form at the website, behindtheshot.tv. And they'll send me a suggestion for a guest that I should have on. And I'm going to read you the text that M.L. Adelman sent me. And it says, and I quote, Please consider interviewing two-time Pulitzer Prize winner Estras M. Suarez. He retired from photojournalism several years ago and is now going back to teaching others to take their photography to the next level. He's a delightful personality and a very giving photog. So with that, I would like to introduce educator, speaker, freelance photographer, and yes, two-time Pulitzer Prize winner Estras Suarez. Estras, how are you, buddy? Hey, Steve. How you doing, man? Thank you for having me. Much appreciated. It, it's my pleasure. I, and, and we have kind of met before because this is our second time recording this show because of a, a audio issue that we had. And we've spoken on a, the phone a few times. And I agree with everything that ML said, because in speaking with you, you, you have an air about you when I talk to you that is really refreshing at the level of photography that you are. And he used a phrase that I love, and that is helping people elevate their photography to the next level. It's the reason I do the critique shows that I do. So I'm kind of curious, somebody with your background, and we'll kind of get into the background here as we go through the picture too, for those that don't know of you. But for somebody with your background that has now taken your lifetime of skills and you're now speaking and doing workshops and mentoring, and you're still a freelance photographer as well, passing those skills on and educating others, it can be so rewarding, but so many people don't take that path. What what got Estras down the path of, of educating others? So, because even though this is the second time we've done this, the answer is exactly the same. When I started shooting, I was a knucklehead. I didn't know head to toe. I was really no good. I just got extremely lucky and I happened to have worked during my second internship with an extremely group of talented photographers of the Rocky Mountain News. And about three months into my internship, which was supposed to have been six months, my boss pulled me into her boss's office and they both sat me down and said, look, we brought you here because we think you have a, a lot of potential, but you haven't shown it so far. So either you get good now or after three months, you're out of here. That put the fear of God in me. And the moment I got out of there, I started asking questions and I started, and, and I started just preparing this poor photographer with, why did you choose that lens? Why was that the aperture? How come you did that? Why did you climb here? And every single time they would come back and tell me the answer and everything started making sense little by little, but they were never stinging with their knowledge and that's it was karmically it's just the right thing to do because so many people helped me become who i am today as a photographer you know oh my god you just said so many things that i want to i want to follow up on one of which was you asked it's really the question you asked that interested interests me here you said i'd ask them why did you choose that lens that you chose because especially for what you do the photojournalism stuff you don't know what's going to happen and yet you've got to be ready with a lens. So lens choice plays a role. 
but also the fact that they weren't stingy. So I, I had a friend of mine on Adam L. Macias on the show once. And always once I get into the shot, I ask people, you know, I go over the technical, right? What was your shutter speed? What was your aperture? And I've had people say to me, I'm not going to tell you that. It, it, it Because people hear that and they're going to think they can go out and shoot the same picture. And I'm like, you know, if somebody that's just starting out needs a baseline to start with, they'll shoot it and they'll find out it's not going to be the exact same picture, picture, but it gets them to a starting point. And when I asked Adam and, and we had this conversation, his comment to me was so good, which is, it's not like I own a copyright on my F-stop, right? Good. Share the knowledge. And you and I have had the conversation on how this relates to something both near and dear to both of our hearts, which is martial arts. And in martial arts, how you elevate in rank, part of that is teaching or senpaiing and giving back to it. Mm -hmm. When you do that, is there – when you are educating others, when you are mentoring others, is there a moment that you know – what path you want to take them down and what in because you can give somebody information overload how do you decide what somebody needs actually um i'm a very hands-on instructor when i am out with people i watch what they do and say let me see what you got and i'm like okay you need to go back and try this this and this yeah. and i do it over yes. and over and over so i start leading them in the right path and eventually they have they start having little epiphanies and when we're done i'm like from now on, every time you go make a shot, I need you to extrapolate. The fact that you already love photography, the fact that you can identify things that you find interesting to photograph tells me that you're on your path. However, you're stopping short. You're not going low enough. You're not juxtaposing enough. You're not climbing high enough. You're always stopping right before the great moment, the great composition. So from now on, do what you think you were supposed to do, but go beyond it and have me in your shoulder saying, what would Estrus do? Because I will be there and I will tell you when you didn't do it right, but I'll also tell you when you, when you did do it right. You, you, okay, again, you, you just reminded me I was watching the season finale for American Idol last night. And it's that type of thing where, where a mentor on these reality shows will say, look, you started to go for that note and you stopped before you hit it and I know you can hit it. And I find, and I'm curious if you if if you find this in your your education space, people tend to stop a little bit short, but most of the time you can almost always push a little farther than what you think. Oh, always, um, unless you're already a very well accomplished photographer. Um, it's I the way I I feel it is. You're trying a suit, a perfect Armani suit that is made out of so many parts that eventually when it fits well, you don't even remember that you're wearing a suit. That's where you need to be in your photography. And people don't know exactly where to push and where to pull back. To me, it's very easy just to tell them, keep pushing, keep trying, keep experimenting, keep creating new perspective. Have fun, for God's sake. You started this whole journey of yours because you love photography. Life, most of my clients are all senior citizens. So a lot of them, you know, they say, oh, I used to love photography in my youth and then life got in the way and I had to, now I'm back to it. So I'm like, you know what? We need to rekindle that love, that passion. Forget about all, all the technical stuff. Forget about all that. Forget about it. You can make a great photo with your phone. Yes, having good optics, good sensors help. But if you understand the basics of composition, your phone is a great tool. So just go a little bit further and forget about it. Don't, oh, I'm my biggest piece. When people say, oh, no, I'm shooting for a, for a club contest. I'm like, whoa, no, we're not. You are better than this. Not to, not to diminish club contests, but they have absolute rules. And I have absolutely a big problem with that. Uh, you know, there's a famous photo of uh, Dali. He's jumping in midair. There's a cat flying, water right. being thrown. There's, remember, I don't remember who took it. It was a live magazine photographer. Well, that's, that's a Dali image, actually, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, and but he and he's in it. Made, but that that is a Dolly image. Yeah, 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 he's in it, and they recreated it with him in it of sorts. But the original, that photo, the horizon is as cute, which is fine. There's so many great things going on. Yet I know so many camera clubs that would look at that photo and say, "Oh, horizon is not straight. Move to the next." So I have issues with that. I'm a true believer that every photo needs to be judged by its own content and its own merit. Right. So yeah, and and and. 
in in my defense, there are times horizons need to be straight, right? No, but, no, no, by all means, by all means. Mm. But at the same Every time, single photo is different. The, the way I think of it is, at least in my belief, I think all creatives and even those that are beginners to burned out, you know, seasoned pros, we all have a voice. And when I say voice, I mean a creative voice. And I think the biggest people say you have to find your own style. And I disagree with that. Style is how you edit. You have to find your own voice. What do you want your images to say to others? And just as importantly, at least I would argue, what do you want your images to say to yourself? Right? I mean, th there's an old saying, the camera looks both ways. And so I think in every picture we take, there is a part of us. I think that's, that's important. Um, one of the things I find interesting in your field, photojournalism, photojournalism isn't landscape although you may take a landscape. Photojournalism is not portraiture, although you may take a portrait. Photojournalism is, in my opinion, and correct me anywhere I'm wrong here, photojournalism is partially defined by its limits. The fact that you can't become involved in, you can't say, you know, it's too dark here, let me add some candles, right? Let me add some light. Can you somebody hold a phone light up for me? You can't say, can you turn your face a certain way? You you have limits in what you can do in post-processing. So from somebody who's done it at the level that you have, what is your what is your opinion right now? Because obviously photojournalism has taken a hit where newspapers have said, you know, we're letting staff go or we're giving our standard writers iPhones to take the pictures with. What is what is your thought right now on the state of journalistic integrity for photojournalism? I think it needs to be taught. I, I meet a lot of young people that don't even have the slightest idea that they are not supposed to get involved, nor are they supposed to orchestrate, nor are they supposed to change reality. Uh, all the, they get a lot of bloggers out there that they think because they have read a lot of news aggregate sites and they, they might have a nose for finding a story they think that they can do whatever they want. It's like, no, you know, the ethics of journalism are ethics of journalism. They apply the same to the written word than to the, to the visual. Um, I used, uh, one of my many titles is that I am an expert speaker for the State Department for Latin America in photojournalism. And this means that I go to places where they mostly do, um, uh, you know, dripping blood photography of sorts, like okay. in the newspapers where you pick it up and it's a bloody rag. And I try to explain, I try to teach him that, you know, you don't have to tell the story this way. There are certain ways where subtlety gets you a lot more. When you give somebody the whole horrible scene, there's nothing left of imagination, but simply horror and shock. When you give a hint of what happened and you show maybe just the foot without the shoe, and then maybe a couple of splatters of blood. And out of focus in the background, you might see something that looks like police car sirens. There's a lot left for the imagination. And I truly believe that. But some people just don't know that kind of stuff. They need to be taught. I truly believe that needs to be passed on. Um, you can't just come in and do whatever the heck you want. What you just described, though, what you just described, immediately what jumps to my mind, oddly, is Alfred Hitchcock. But we'll go. That, that's a different story. But what kind of jumps to my mind is cinematography. What you just described is 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 a cinematic storytelling through stills. I am a big believer of putting as much information as I can within the one frame because I'm all about moving. I am when I when I'm shooting, you can if I stand still, it's only to assess for a bit and then I start moving, and I'll, I'll keep going and going and going. But once I stop. I want to be able, I want you to be able to look at that photo and know the story right away. One frame, the whole story. Yeah, you get to read the caption, but I want to grab you. I want, I want to tell you as much as I can of the scene in that one frame. So I'm always composing with my mind. And, uh, I'm a, I'm a true believer that it's an art. It is an art. And, uh, I, this is going to sound very chauvinistic and outdated and I'm going to apologize in advance because I don't mean anything as far as the sex only that the only the first time I heard this is a woman 
wearing lingerie is very, very sexy and enticing because there's a lot left for the imagination. A woman in the nude has its own beauty, but it's done. You've seen it all. Your mind doesn't want to get in. I mean, you might want to get involved beyond that, but not in the same way. I like to I like to give you tidbits of information so you feel compelled to fill in the blank. When you feel compelled to fill in the blank, you're engaging with my work. When you're engaging with my work, you're spending time with it. When you spend time with it, I've done my duty as a photojournalist, which is I just want you to spend time looking at my photos because I have stories to tell you. So right. Yeah. And and you said something. I follow you on Instagram. And by the way, if you're watching the video for this, uh, the the links for Estras's website, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, et cetera, are all popping up. But if you want to you know, go click them somewhere, if you're not watching the video and listen to the audio, go to BehindTheShot.tv, find this episode. All the links are in the blog post that I wrote, uh, as well as a bunch of other stuff that I wrote about Estras. But on Instagram, on a picture recently, you made a, a comment that was near and dear to my heart. And the comment is a good decisive moment will always trump imperfections found in composition. And I would even extend that to say imperfections found in almost any way in an image. Uh, one of my wife's favorite images of mine is of the lead singer of the band Korn, Jonathan Davis. And he's on stage, arms out. Clearly, this lead singer is taking a moment to soak in the crowd and enjoy the moment. And Steve missed focus. And it's subtle. It's not like he's a blur, but he's definitely soft. And yet, even with that, there's this moment that happens there that my wife still, it's one of her favorite shots of mine and, and arguably mine too, although as the photographer, it bothers me. When you take that into photojournalism, what is the key to a good photojournalistic image? What, what makes a good photojournalism image? That's a broad God question, is in the I details. know. No, it's fine, it's fine. I believe God is in the details. And usually details are the kind of stuff that are going to take your photo from a so-so photo to a good photo to a great photo to an extraordinary transcendental photo. And it's all about those tiny, tiny details. And I always like to give the example of Carol Goosey, uh, who used to work for the Washington Post. Carol Goosey no longer competes in the Pulitzers because she has so many of her own. Carol was a it's a master of the art of photography. And uh, if you look at her images and you analyze them, it's all about the tiny details, the things that she has in her photos and nobody else does. Uh, I think I already told you the story that I was at the Miami Herald. I used to visit when I used to live in South Florida. And I saw a photo on a wall that I thought was Carol Goosey. It was the Pulitzer Prize winning photo of her in Haiti, um, a many, an American soldier, African-American soldier, holding a gun, uh, white stands, She's shooting low, so skies behind. His eyes are wide open. There's a crowd around him, and there's a Haitian man cowering at his feet. He's obviously protecting the man from the crowd. And that's the photo that I thought I saw. And I said, wow, well, how come Carol's photo is here? I said, no, no, that's from another photographer. Oh. That one didn't win the Pulitzer. Hers went, won the Pulitzer. I'm like, why is that? Hers has a dog coming out of the frame. And it is true. When you look at all the spokes of information, like the perfect design, she has that one more element that is just perfectly aligned with the hands and it just, that's it. So God is in the details. It's about capturing that decisive moment. I'm going a little bit beyond it. Um, good friend of mine, great photographer, who's influenced my photography at the beginning of my career, and it's Dominic Chavez, whom I told you about. He's, he always tells me, compadre, it's all about the little people. <laughs> and he's talking about composition. He's talking about, you have a photo, there's stuff going on in the foreground, there's stuff in the second plane, and maybe in the back end, way back there, there's tiny people doing something, and they always add something to the scene if you compose it right. So at the, the end of the day, get a decisive moment, but if you can add more stuff on that, then you're really golden. You just said two things, though, that, that intrigued me, and that is, one, the, the, the spokes of the image that you were talking about but that dog that was in the frame is partially luck, right? I oh, mean, has, by ha all means. Oh. Have there, has there ever <laughs> been a time when you go click, 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 and you look and go, oh, man, the, the one thing in my head that needed to be in that image cleared the scene before I clicked? I Yeah, we miss a lot of shots out in the field. There's no doubt about it. But I always tell people, tell this when I'm giving talks and people laugh, serendipity is my lover. Serendipity lives 
with me. I am so used to amazing things happening when I am looking through my frame, things that I wasn't expected, that now I expect them. You know, like if I have an amazing setup and stuff, I, I, I just kind of wait and it's coming. Something great is going to happen. And it does. It's just over and over. I know. I know. <laughs> I, I, no, the reason I'm, I'm like this is because you're saying things. I'm, oh my God, I love this. So you're saying things that when I used to DJ weddings, I DJed weddings for 18 years. And there was one wedding photographer, one out of all the wedding photographers that I worked with. And in these days, it was a Hasi, right? So looking down through the top viewfinder of a Hasi. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. for like 15 minutes, he was curled up on his knees in the corner of the room, just looking down. And I went up to him and I went, I'm just not sure what's happening. And he goes, I'm waiting for the scene to frame itself. That's what you just described, right? Something's going to happen in front of me. Something's going to happen. You're waiting for the story to unfold as opposed to trying to force the frame that's there. And the other thing that you said when you were talking about your friend uh, was you said, we were talking about the little people. And you said, you know, there may be something on the second plane. And now you're talking, you know, traditional landscape photography, really, which is where you have a foreground subject, a midground subject, and a background subject. Are you aware of that when you're doing photojournalism? Very much so. Because I wow. really want to create, I want to bring you in with, with the first layer, wow, in your face. This is what, but then I want you involved. I want to, oh, look at what's going on. Oh, look what's going on back there. I want people to look deeper and deeper into that photo. Again, because it always boils down to, the more time people spend engaged with that photo, the better, most likely, a photo it is. So, right. Okay. So, which brings us, let's get into the photo. Because when we were going back and forth and picking photos, and, and you sent me a pool of photos going, you know, I think these would work as great discussions. And I'm flipping through the photos. And then this comes up. And literally, Steve went, what the hell? Right? This is one of those moments that... Not even as a photographer, although I'll be honest, it's colored as by the fact that I'm a photographer when I see this. I mean, we all bring our life experience with us to to anything that we're viewing. So as uh, when I look at this, I can't not look at it from a photography point of view. But from a human point of view, when this image popped up in front of me, it has it has such impact. And you used a word when we were when we were talking about it over email. You use the word tension. So for those of you that are listening on an audio feed, I'm going to do my best to try and describe this thing. I'm not going to lie. This is this may be the most difficult image that I've ever had to describe verbally. And part of the reason is exactly what Estras just said. The layers of information that are in this shot, specifically just off the top of my head, there's four layers of information in this shot. So let me, let me try and describe the scene for you and... Uh, Close your eyes and transport with me to this moment, unless if you're driving. If you're driving, keep your eyes open. But the the name of this shot is Islamic Fighter. And picture yourself in Gaza City surrounded by Islamic jihadists. There's five that you can clearly see in the shot, although there's kind of a part of one that you can see out of the shot. So we'll call it five slash sixes Islamic fighters. But here's the thing. Some of them have their face masks pulled down, covering their face. One does not. I actually find that interesting that one of them, the face is exposed. Two of these Islamic fighters are looking straight down the barrel of Estras's lens. I mean, in, in I don't want to say in an intimidating way. Actually, I'm going to ask. The fact that those two were looking at you, were you aware of that? And was that intimidating? Yes, it was intimidating. And yes, I was aware, but I, I, I would sort of have a, it's a silly thing, but I, I expect the best out of people. And I figure logically, if they think I'm a fool, nobody really wants to abuse the fool. So I got as close as I could to make the photo. And when they, when I felt the tension rise higher, I just raised my hand, smiled, gave them the goofiest, biggest smile that I have. And I backed off and the other guys just kept glaring at me. So. See, and, and there's that word tension. So you've got 
this is almost like in a cafe, it looks like, or a, or a, some kind of a patio. There's a, there's a round table with a, a checkered tablecloth on it. And everybody around the table is dressed in full military gear. And everybody has a rifle. It looks like a Kalashnikov or, or some, you know, some type of automatic weapon. One of those Kalashnikovs is laying on the table. Everybody else has one in their lap. And the guy that's in the very front, he has a Kalashnikov on his lap, but that's not enough. He's also got a an RPG, a rocket-propelled grenade, up pointing. So he's in the bottom right corner of the frame, his face is. His hand is right next to his face holding the RPG. And it points out the top left corner of the frame. And the wherewithal in your mind when you captured this to make sure you didn't lose any of the grenade on the end of this, the grenade is entirely in frame. That is one of the areas I think a lot of, uh, I don't want to say beginners, but a lot of less experienced people might have have missed and cropped some of that off in, in camera. But here's where the tension comes in. So the guy in the bottom right corner. I don't know how to paint this picture verbally. I really don't. Guy in the bottom right corner, his face is looking right at Estrus. There's only one of his eyes in the frame, his right eye left on the frame. And it's looking out of the frame to the right. Like, where is he looking? What's he looking at? Is there something happening behind Estrus that we need to know about right now? Because something good or bad could happen. And that's, by the way, one of the cool things. I don't know if what's going to happen is good or bad. Right. He's looking at something and here's the layers. So you've got the guy in the front with the RPG. Then you have the row of guys behind the table and a red background to the patio and the left is blue. Layer number three, there's a young minor child hanging over that red barricade, looking at the Islamic fighters, putting a child here. I mean, the child was just there. It's not like you put him there. But I mean, from a composition point of view, having a child in here changes everything. And then outside in the bright, bright sunlight, you see a ton more fighters. There's four layers in this thing. It's amazing. So did I miss anything? No, you pretty much got everything. Four layers. The kid is pretty much right on top of the RPG. The one thing, though, I want you to notice the body language of the child. Even though he's out of focus, you can tell he's kind of giddy. It's, yes. It's, it's, the body language is that of a kid who's watching the show. And he finds it interesting. It's an aspirational thing for, for those kids in that area. And that's what I had seen earlier because the kids were actually jumping under the barbed wire training to do it themselves. And I got photos of that too. So the kids look up to this uh, Islamic fighters. So that's what you're seeing there. The kid is not stressed out. The kid is just leaning forward and enjoying the fact that he gets to watch all these fight fighters up close and personal. So this was shot according to EXIF data. And you and I have talked about this. You're normally a Nikon shooter. Uh, yep. For some reason, you were shooting Canon here. The uh, paper made me do it. <laughs> <laughs> the Boston Globe, they bought a bunch of, of Canon gear and they told us we had to use it because the big lenses came from. That's what they had in the pool. So you have to go with them. Interesting. Okay. So Canon uh, 1D Mark II, manual mode, spot metering. By the way, what lens was this? 16 to 35. 16-35, Okay. One of my favorite lenses. I have the Mark III version of that lens, and it is tack freaking sharp. So 16, mm -hmm. and which makes sense also because this is 16 millimeter, a 50th of a second, 640 ISO, f6.3. And I've got so many questions for you on your exposure choices here. First of all, though, I want to go with the 16 millimeter because in my head, I shoot 16 millimeter to get an entire stage of a concert in. If I'm 16 millimeter and I get a guy's face that close, I'm in his lap. How close are you to him? I am over his shoulder, right above him. I, he could hear me breathing. I am right on him. It's so then what frame. is that relationship like? I mean, again, <laughs> in case you didn't notice, he's got both a rifle and an RPG and you're looking over his shoulder. I'm questioning your sanity I, is basically what I'm doing. No, yeah, no, no. I, I remember I was, we were, the writer and I were standing next to each other and I saw it. We were looking at the fighters and I told him, hold on a second, I got to get this photo. And he's like, dude, because he speaks his way. He's like, dude, are you sure? I'm like, no, hold on, hold on. I got a plan. 
And my plan was to get as close as I possible. The thing is, when I see a scene, I start shooting right away because you never know when a scene is going to fall apart. So I kept inching closer and composing, inching closer and composing until I'm right above. As long as this guy's not paying attention to me directly, I can live with the other two guys in math glaring at me because the guy that I need to be more careful with is the guy who's closest to me because it is his space that I'm completely invading. So I know for a fact, the moment he focuses on me, the gig is up. I know that that's it. Uh, he's going to look at me. He might get up, scream at me. Worst case scenario, pick up his, his Kalashnikov and point it at me. And But, you know, he just, so there, there's only like three frames of this because somebody called him or something called him. He looked over his shoulder and he bypassed me. And I am, I got three frames of that. On the next one, he's already looking and he's looking back at me. His whole body language changes. He actually, you know, he's no longer leaning back. He's, he just kind of stood more erect and he's looking at me. Now he's kind of leaning back because now I am on top of him. And that point is now when I lower my cameras, I just raise my hands and I just give him the silly smile and I just walk away and I'm like, oh, you know, so I just bring my hands to chest and I apologize. But as it's happening, in you may not even, now that I think about it, you may not even be thinking in these terms, but... From the outside looking in, I'm wondering, is it tense? You know, is it easygoing? Is it tense? Is it comfortable? Is it not comfortable? Are you aware of being on edge? No, well, this guy- Or are you completely just in the lens? No, no, no. I am, I'm, I am, I am hyper alert and aware of my surroundings. In martial arts, you know how it is. You know, my, my old sensei, the creator of the first style that I, he, he taught me the first, the, the five A's of self-defense. Alert, alert, avoid, anticipate an action. And that happens to be pretty much something that I use when I'm shooting. I'm extremely alert. I'm extremely aware. I don't avoid because I'm actually looking forward to it. But I try to anticipate and then I'll make the photo or I'll move. I'll, you know, like I said, my shooting mantra is keep shooting, keep moving, keep adjusting. Keep shooting, keep moving, keep adjusting. And I use that all the time. So I kind of knew that this needed to be done fast. I have been messing with a camera that usually I'm an aperture priority mode shooter, but the camera was being stupid. I'm usually a matrix metering guy and the camera was just giving me silhouettes. I'm like, oh, what the hell? So I always tell people cameras are so smart, they're stupid. You always need to remember it's just a tool and you control it. When that happens, I just switch to manual mode and do what I got to do. But yeah, that was a, that was a risk that I was running, but it was worth it. So you're talking manual versus aperture priority. See, and in my head for this type of shooting, I totally get aperture priority and I live in matrix mode. Although that's partially because I shoot a 5d series and unlike your, your beloved Nikons, the 5d series, if I move my focus point and I'm in spot metering, the spot metering stays at the center, which is a problem with the 1d series you were shooting here or a number of the, the Nikons, it will follow up. But, but one of the choices then that you're faced with, with your mantra of, you know, keep shooting, keep adjusting, keep shooting, keep adjusting is the lens that you have. Like we talked about before, you don't know what's going to happen ahead of time. So in this particular case, you're, you're using a 16 to 35 2.8, but obviously you may have multiple bodies or you may have uh, multiple lenses. What is your deciding factor for what lens choice you want to have loaded on your camera body not knowing what's going to happen in front of you. That's simple. The formula is always the same, pretty much, no matter what I'm shooting. On my right, right arm, there will always be a camera with a wide-angle zoom. On my left arm, there will be a camera with a telephoto zoom. The one on the right will vary. Uh, if I'm using mirrorless, the Z series, it'll be a 14 to 30, 4 mirrorless. Uh, if it's the Nikon, uh, the DSLR, D4, D5, I'm talking 17 to 35, 2.8. Okay. And on the left-hand side, there will always be the 70 to 200. Th All things right. are going to happen up close and things are going to happen afar. I am going to shoot first with a telephoto and very far away. Then I'm going to physically move myself as close as I can possibly to the scene or to the subject matter. So, uh, But I will play the scene. But I, I think those two lenses always give me a complete range and I can pretty much deal with whatever comes my way. Shoot wide, shoot tight, shoot wide, shoot tight, get both. Do, do you also... Yeah. Uh, shoot because i did look and a number of your shots are portrait orientation and a number of landscape do you tend to shoot every scene both orientations too no i that to me that's more innate 
Some okay. things feel a certain way. Some things feel the other way. I, so, unless there's some, I don't go landscape unless there's something filling the frame on the right. I hate landscape composition where it's heavy on the one side and there's emptiness on the other side. I'm like, okay, if I were a graphic designer, that is a great photo. Because look at all that space I just right. left in there. But it doesn't serve the purpose of me telling the story. I'm missing, I'm missing stuff there. So. It's great if it's going to go in a magazine and they need to put copy on a on a two page spread. Yeah, and they, sometimes they, the, the, a good photo editor will tell you that. I say we we need you to leave a lot of space. You know, so if you have an amazing scene in front of you and it's a Texas sky where there's a you know it looks like it's going about to start spitting out tornadoes and the clouds are dark and foreboding and loaded. Yeah, you certainly want to leave all that space. Yeah, put your text there, but I'm telling the story of the moment, so that kind of makes sense. Okay, so. I want to talk about the technical side here for a second because 50th of a second, but you're only at ISO 640 and that camera body goes super high and super clean on ISO. Do you, were you worried that that 50th or do you ever worry that 50th isn't enough? No, I can shoot one eighth of a second handheld with my 70 to 200 and I'm okay with it. Wow. Okay. Definitely a better photographer than I am. Okay. <laughs> So let's touch on the f6.3 because for me in a scene like this, my my mind would probably immediately go to around f8. f6.3 in a full frame is a, you know, it's not narrow. And granted, again, you're at 16 millimeter here. So it's it's a deeper depth of field than, than if you were at 6.3 on a 70 to 200. But it's still pretty shallow. What is your deciding factor when you're when you're choosing these settings? Do you when I do take you always the, stay at six three or you do, do or do you no, say no. to yourself well, this scene needs it? No, no, I will. So I start with the middle of the road seven one eight point oh, but I but as I move through the world, I keep moving it. I you know okay no this requires shallower no this requires more depth to feel oh this is a this is a whole scene stacking up situation I need I need sixteen twenty two so every situation I weigh on its own by its okay. own value. On this one, I kind of I, I knew that lens pretty well, and anything beyond that, it starts giving you a, a, what I consider to be a little bit too much information in the background. And I was hyper aware. I I hate photographing backlit scenes because you know the the best camera in the world for the visible spectrum of light is a human eye. We have the equivalent of 240 stops in our eyes. The best camera, the best sensors for the visible spectrum of light might be 30, 40. So. So you have to you have you know you have to take your poison you have to take your medicine and you need to learn how to how to use that. So I kind of knew that six point three would be about the right. Okay, I need this guy, this guy definitely focused. The other the second layer, in focus to a point the kid starts going off and I definitely need those people out there, um, out of focus and I am gonna over I need to overexpose a bit because I cannot loosen completely. So I, it's not a full overexposure just on this guy. It's a balance between exposing for what's in the foreground and exposing to the limitations of the camera within the background and being able to catch the mid-tone. So calculation said, you know how it is. Once once you've been doing this, you become the camera. You know, uh, right. the, the human brain is amazing and it does all the calculations on the go as you move through the world. So those are things that I normally think about when I have time. But when you are in a situation this tense, your adrenaline starts pumping and the world starts slowing down. So what normally I would have the time to think, Okay, maybe I'll use a 6.3 and say slow. It's happening really fast in my mind, but I'm make, making calculations and I'm looking. I'm like, okay, this is the right thing. And there's only so much I could do after this because, like I said, the next frame, he looks at me and the whole thing just changes. And the photo is gone. The moment was gone. And I, so at that point, I was already part of the scene. Well, that's and that's one of the neat things in music photography. I tell people when they're trying to learn music photography, in my scenario, you're going to be in the dark. So you need to know your exposure triangle and your reciprocals without thought, right? Um, you have to be able to just do it. You have to know that your camera is set to third stops of, you know, whatever you're adjusting, shutter speed, whatever. So if I need to go a stop one way or the other, click, 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 it's three clicks for me. And it, it becomes, like you say, it becomes just part of your body at the this point but the one thing i think of, most go go ahead i'll say one of, one of the things that i like to tell people and i think we've talked about this before is that you need to become in zen with your camera 
the concept of Zen is extremely hard to define and to explain. If you need to talk about it, you're kind of missing the point. So I had to come up with a closer example, and it's the Zen of wearing pants. If you're wearing pants that are too baggy and you're having to pull them up all the time, you're not in Zen with your pants. If you're wearing pants that are so tight they're constricting your movement, then you're not in Zen with your pants. When you forget you're wearing your pants, now that's where you need to be. That's exactly what needs to happen with your camera. You can't be wasting time looking down and trying to figure stuff. Everything needs to happen right here in the uh, and your fingers better be used to all those buttons and what they're doing. I got to start naming my episodes just that have nothing to do with the picture because the the title of this episode should be Zen with your pants. No question about it. <laughs> so compositionally, this is the area I think so many photographers, I don't want to say fail because again, you know, there are compositional rules that are based on the historical painters, and there's a reason that they work and that we reiterate them over and over and over and over. Rule of thirds, rule of odds, you know, horizon line. Not There's a number of things that we do because it's been proven over centuries that the human eye finds it pleasing or it leads you through a photo. But even with that, you can take leeway here and there. So I don't want to say it's wrong, but it's one of the areas I find a lot of photographers fall as far as making a successful image. And this image, I don't even know where to start with the way that this image lands on virtually every, every compositional rule I can think of. First of all, the round table, if you come off the circle of the round table, across the guys in the back, all the way to the guy in the front, that's a golden spiral or a Fibonacci spiral. You've got the guy in the back and the guy in the front line up on rule of thirds. You've got layers in the image. There are so many composition compositional hits that you did in this. So I guess my question is under the conditions we've spoken about, do you, are, are you hyper aware as well of your in-camera composition or, or do you shoot wide? Because look, somebody could jump out of the frame really quick. Do you shoot wide and assume you'll crop in post? No, I'm always composing. I'm always, one of the things that I was taught by my amazing editors back at the Rocky Mountain News was that you got to look at your edges. You got to look at your frames. So many times young photographers get so caught up what's going on right smack in the middle. They cut off important pieces of information so i compose and i will do i'm always doing micro adjustments to make sure that i get as much and by that i mean i will be moving the camera just a bit up and down side to side but i'm also will physically be moving swaying side to side to get that perfect composition and it is true that i shoot on burst i think that when it comes to human beings people move extremely fast within the frame so but you give yourself the most chances by moving and shooting so when you hear me do <laughs> Not that I got the same shot three times. There are three tiny variations that make all the difference there. And one of them is going to be the perfect one. Yeah. And sometimes with a burst, it could be literally just the eyes being open a different amount. Oh, yeah. Changes yeah. changes or the story hands completely. about to come together uh, or touching, you know, the difference. Yeah. Tiny things, tiny things. So when it comes to post-production, first of all, what software do you use? Photomechanic and Photoshop. That's it. No Lightroom. I don't do batch processing of anything. I bought Lightroom. I tried it. It didn't seem intuitive for me to the point that it sits on my toolbar and I probably, to open it, would have to call them and say, hey, I bought this. Where's my key? Because I forgot where it is. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Photoshop to me, it's fine. And photo mechanic, it's perfect for what I do. Okay. So I'm a photo mechanic fan. I've mentioned it on this show many, many times. But for those that don't know, because really I think photo mechanic, I think what you do, photo mechanic is the photojournalistic tool, especially for sports photographers, because you have all kinds of, of uh, codes no that you can kidding. put in where you type one little thing and it populates it with the player's name, the player's number, the team, that type of thing. But for somebody that does what you do, explain why you use photo mechanic. To tell you the truth, just like in martial arts, in martial arts, I was first taught to punch and kick my way out of things. And that was great when I was young and fast and, and very powerful. That is until I started realizing there are people out there who would always be faster, more powerful than you. But the bottom line, you would always go back to your beginning. And so if you put me amongst a, uh, a bunch of people that are about to attack me, you get close to me, I'm going to punch you. Then I'm going to put you in a joint lock and I might throw you over my shoulder because that's my, the second style that I learned. Same thing with photography for me. 
I, I want to I wanna have the feel of looking at a contact sheet, you know, one frame at a time. So I actually blow up the photo full frame and I go through the click, 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 and, and I can, and I can edit extreme. I can pick extremely fast. Like I mentioned before, I, I know for a fact it takes me about an hour and 40 minutes to edit 20, to pick through, go through 20,000 images because I've wow. done it. And it's always the same result. I'm off by maybe five frames. So I, I just, I pick by instinct. If I have any doubt, it's no good because the people looking at your photos will have that doubt exponentially over. So if I find it worth it taking a second look, I click and I'll come back to it. So it's tick, 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 Well, and that's, that's, that's where photo mechanic is a winner because it pulls up previews so quickly. When, when you get a shot like this into Photoshop, what would you or might you have done to a shot like this? As far as um, post-processing? post-processing, editing. Uh, Lighten, darken, clean bugs in the sensor. That's it. Oh, and sharpness of the Moray filter. That's it. Okay, so... I don't do anything else. I don't even know how to do anything else. What... Are there things that you... I'm assuming photo... It's known that there are photojournalistic integrity rules, like I can't remove a microphone if it's going into a newspaper or something like that. The truth is every newspaper, every magazine, every journalistic outlet has slightly different rules, but there are media standards for photojournalism. Right. So what can't you do? You can you can dodge, burn, crop. You can dodge, you can burn, you can uh, lighten the overall thing, you can pump up the contrast, you can sharpen. Like I mentioned, digital cameras nowadays, they come in with a Moray filter, and that Moray filter to me is like dullness. <laughs> and the right. moment you apply just more sharpen, it starts looking like negative. In my mind, I always I remember looking through that loop and seeing the eyelashes. That's what I'm looking for. So my photos, I'm always looking for the eyelashes, and that's about it. And you can crop, of course, you can crop. Um, Correct white balance, enough, things with, like that. Uh, yeah, yeah, but I don't. Color to me is not that relevant in my world. It's more about the content. You know, like I mentioned before, I. You know, I do presentations sometimes and they call, the tech people call me and say, oh, w- would you like us to calibrate your monitor to what we're going to be seeing? I'm like, I don't really care. If the content of my photos is not good enough, who cares about my color? I don't right. care. It's fine. Yeah. So, I mean, unless you're shooting a commercial job for Coca-Cola and you need a Coca-Cola red, and if it's a slight right. off, somebody at Coca-Cola is going to go, dude, what are you doing? The specs and they say, this is it. This yeah. is Coca-Cola red. So much. Cyan, so much magenta, so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, okay. Any tip you would give aspiring photojournalists? Uh, watch your backgrounds always and look for the decisive moment. Do not walk away from a situation until you have exhausted the possibilities. So if it's something that repeats itself, work every single angle there is. If, so, if it's, some, it's a one of a kind, hopefully you have been paying enough attention where you're already in the best position with the cleanest background and serendipity smiled upon you and gave you that perfect moment that you were looking for. So watch your background, look for decisive moments and continuously be adjusting. Yeah. Oh, I have one more to add. Yeah, one what's more that? To add. Give yourself the assignment you want somebody else to give you. If you're a young photographer and you wanna, you wanna cover X, find the equivalent to X in your own neighborhood. Learn where there's no the pressure of the deadline. You know, I gave myself the assignment of documenting a neighborhood back in Denver when I wanted National Geographic to give me an assignment of photographing a culture or a place. So I, I made the pilgrimage to the National Geographic and I met the director of photography at the time. And he said, give yourself the assignment you want us to give you and let's see what you get. And I did. And I spent two and a half years photographing this one little neighborhood. That's where I started recognizing decisive moments, composition, light. And I learned at my own leisure. By the time I pulled this body workout, that same guy's like, whoa, you need to do a book on this. That, so give yourself the assignment you want someone else to give you. That's gold. That right there is gold. Okay, so last question, and I kind of know the answer because, again, this is the second time we've recorded this episode, but who is a photographer or an artist that people may or may not know about but they should know about? It's uh, my friend that I mentioned before, because I know a lot of famous people, 
But I also know photographers that are amazing, great, and they just haven't gotten the recognition they deserve. So my friend Dominic Chavez is that guy. He, I think he should have won every award there was to be won with all the coverage of wars and disasters. And now he specializes in uh, medical issues in Africa mostly. He, work, he does a lot of work for the World Bank. So his name is Dominic Chavez. His website is dominicchavez.com. And he is amazing. Okay. And I will put a link to Dominique's website in the show notes so you can find it there. And for that matter, all the links having to do with Estros, also in the blog post at behindtheshot.tv. Really quick, though, before we go, I just want to, for those on audio, I just want to mention some of the key ones that you might have link-wise. So what's your website? My website is estras.com. That's E-S-S-D-R-A-S, estras.com, or my full name, estrasandsuarez.com. My Instagram is Estres underscore zero zero one. My Twitter is Estres and Suarez. Bottom line, okay. if you know how to spell Estres, E-S-S-D-R-A-S, I will pop up. <laughs> yeah. And again, if you go to the blog post, I've got all the links there as well. Uh, dude, I, I don't even know how to say thank you because you honestly, to, to Mr. Adelman, Mr. or Mrs., I, I, I'm assuming ML is a guy. I apologize if I'm no, wrong. No, it's a woman, actually. MJ. MJ okay. Adelman. Well, to MJ, thank you so very much for the suggestion to get Estras on because seriously, just absolute gold, man. Absolutely love it. Wonderful to see you again. And uh, thank you very, very much. My honor, my pleasure. Thank you. To everybody, make sure you head to the website. It's behindtheshot.tv. I've got all the links there. I've got a little bit that I wrote about Estras there. And of course, all the shows are there and all the links Everything you need to know about how to subscribe to Behind the Shot. And again, it's BehindTheShot.tv. Wherever you get your podcasts, you can subscribe either in audio or video if your podcast app supports video. And if your podcast app doesn't support video, you can get the video on YouTube. And if you are there, please make sure you head down, subscribe, give me a thumbs up, a like. That, that helps with the algorithm a whole, whole bunch. I do want to remind you of the workshop that I'm going to be doing. It's coming up in October. And this workshop is something that I consider to be very, very special. It's an opportunity for you to go with one photo workshop to a destination city and explore the people and the history and the music and the food. It's the Wanderers Photo Workshop. Again, it's happening in October. And this time, it is this is the first one that, that they're doing. It's in New Orleans. It's going to be a blast. There's four instructors, food and beverage photographer Freddie Clark. He's the guy who came up with the concept. He's going to be there doing it. The host of the Hands-On Photography Podcast and a good friend of mine, Ant Pruitt, he's going to be there doing more of the street and city and travel type photography. We have a New York Times contributor, a food photographer as well. Andrew Scrivani is going to be there doing the food stuff. And I'm doing the music. And if you want information, it's at Wanderers Photo. Dot com, and I hope to see you there in October. Other than that, as always, this is the show where we try and get inside the mind of great photographers by taking a closer look behind one of their shots. As always, thank you to my guest this time around, Estra Suarez. Wonderful to have you on the show. And to everybody else, thanks for watching. We will see you on the next show. 